Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Samantha Paul from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center, talking about treating metastatic renal cell carcinoma. I want to thank uh, Dr. Odisho and uh, uh, the folks at UCSF for the kind invitation to give this talk. Um, I'll be focusing on treatment and management of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Um, I've got two screens up, so I'll keep a close eye on the Q&A box as we're going through this. Uh, but definitely give me a holler if there's any questions or concerns around what we're discussing today. Um, so I figure what we'd start with is uh, just the general sort of landscape of therapies that we have for kidney cancer and how it's evolved. Um, this is well before the time of the residents and fellows on this call and, and even before my own time. But hydocinerleukin-2 was the first treatment that was really used in a widespread fashion for advanced kidney cancer. Um, and since then, we've been very fortunate to have a real evolution in terms of the therapies that have been available for the disease. Um, Sinitinib and serafinib emerged back in 2005. These are both VEGF-directed therapies. Temsorolimus is an mTOR inhibitor. This came onto market in 2007. You can see that the debates have really sort of evolved over the course of time. Do we use a VEGF inhibitor? Do we use an mTOR inhibitor? More recently, the debates have gotten very exciting in treating advanced kidney cancer because we've had some novel combinations of therapies, targeted therapies with immune therapy, pure immune therapy regimens. And we'll spend a good amount of time during our talk uh, today going through the data that supports some of this. So we're gonna start by discussing the landscape of treatments, but before I get into that, if, if you walk out of this talk with you know, one potentially important um, uh, readout from it, it's that for every new patient with advanced kidney cancer that you see, try to compute the HANG risk score, the IMDC risk score. The IMDC risk score, the International MRCC Database Consortium score, gives you not just a, 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 an easy way to compute a patient's prognosis with advanced disease, but it gives you something that's truly, I think, been validated in the context of patients getting VEGF TKIs, and it's something that's useful in treatment allocation. So the IMDC risk score uses the following elements. You take whether or not the patient was within, within one year from the time of diagnosis to the time of systemic treatment. So you know, if your patient had localized disease and then developed metastases three years later, they don't get a point for this. But if your patient had de novo metastatic disease and has metastases evolving like wildfire right from the get-go, they get a point in this regard. You use performance status, um, which is a measure of how able and functional patients are. And then you use four simple laboratory-based parameters to decide whether or not a patient has favorable, intermediate, or porous disease. So how does that play into my treatment recommendations? I'm gonna to get to that, but I wanted to kind of walk you through some of the key data sets. And, and if you know these data sets, um, I can assure you that your, your medical oncology colleagues are gonna be blown away. And, and frankly, you could, you could easily take our jobs because you don't really need to know much more to treat kidney cancer than these four frontline clinical trials. Um, so the first study that I'll go over was actually presented about three years ago now. Uh, the title of the slide used to be a, a banner year in treating metastatic kidney cancer, but now it's been several banner years for the disease. 
Um, so this trial looked at a dual immunotherapy regimen of nivolumab and ipilimumab, and it compared this regimen against sinitinib therapy. So this is the so-called Checkmate 214 clinical trial. It took patients with advanced disease, patients who had a good performance status, and it randomized them in a one-to-one -one fashion to either receive nivolumab and ipilimumab followed by nivolumab itself or targeted therapy with sinitinib. Now keep in mind the contrast here. Sinitinib is an oral targeted agent. It hits VEGF. Nivolumab and ipilimumab is a pure immunotherapy regimen. Nivolumab hits PD-1, ipilimumab hits CTLA-4. So this study was really aimed to see whether or not a pure immunotherapy regimen could best a targeted therapy regimen. And it did. If you look at the intermediate and poorest population, and this again really lends itself to why it's so critical to get that IMDC risk score, you can see that patients that were intermediate and poor risk actually fared better with nivolumab and ipilimumab, that's in the red over here, versus therapy with sinitinib. So nevoipi in red, sinitinib in blue, clear win for nevoipi here, no doubt about it. Now, um, if you look at overall survival in the overall population, not just intermediate and poor risk, you see these curves narrow a little bit. And the reason for that is that it's really driven by that intermediate and poorest population. If you shift your focus to favorable risk, you actually see the patients who got sinitinib did better in this case. So very, very important to keep in mind that if you're seeing a patient with good risk disease, you probably don't want to go with an agent like nevonipi up front, a regimen like that. Uh, VEGF-TKI or a combination thereof may actually be the more appropriate strategy. What about toxicities? I, I think these tornado plots are great. This is a really you know, f uh, easy way to interpret the toxicity associated with different regimens. Nevo and Ipi, again, being purely immunotherapy, doesn't have as much, for instance, in the way of, this is hand-foot syndrome here, as sinitinib does, doesn't cause as much hypertension. Um, it does result in a fair amount of diarrhea. You gotta keep in mind when you're using these immune-based regimens that the toxicity management strategy is totally different. If you're using a regimen like sinitinib, for instance, um, you, you just stop the drug and over the course of time, the side effect improves. With immune-based therapy, you've gotta get on the phone with your specialists. You've gotta really make sure that you're prudent and administering steroids early on and patients who have immune-related diarrhea. Otherwise, it could rage out of control and potentially represent a fatal toxicity. But nonetheless, if, you know, as the uh, casual observer of this data, you take a broad look, I mean, it certainly looks as those individuals getting nivolumab and ipilimumab fare better uh, than those getting sinitinib from a toxicity standpoint. I'm not going to spend too much time going over this second data set, axitinib and nivolumab. I'll tell you why in just a moment. Um, but I did want to go over the broad premise of what we're doing with combination clinical trials. So axitinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that hits VEGF. Avelumab is a PDL1 inhibitor. Sinitinib is a VEGF inhibitor, right? So basically we're taking a VEGF plus immune therapy regimen and comparing it to a VEGF-based regimen. So why would we do that? Well, when we're using a VEGF-TKI by itself, we're trying to prolong progression-free survival. When we're using immunotherapy, we're trying to generate a tail on the curve of survival here. Um, and when we combine these regimens, using TKI plus immunotherapy, we're really trying to sort of prop this curve up here. So the so-called Javelin Renal 101 study looked at axitinib plus avelumab, compared it to sinitinib therapy. And what they saw here 
in the study looked like um, a clear win. Uh, the primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival in the pdl one positive group. And you can see that clearly in the patients that were pdl one positive, there was benefit. The, the benefit actually extended to those individuals that were pdl one negative too. This is the overall population. You can see that folks just do better in terms of progression-free survival. The regimen the, has not really come into clinical use to a significant extent though, because of one particular issue, and that is the overall survival data. And the overall survival data, sorry, I'm having a little bit of an issue with my cursor here, but the overall survival data is weak. You know, you don't see a clear benefit in terms of axitinib and abelumab, p-value is 0 0.06. This is nothing that I think as a medical oncologist we would write home about. So axitinib and abelumab has sort of fallen off the map in terms of a frontline regimen for uh, kidney cancer. I'm gonna spend a little bit more time going over what is probably more clinically relevant and that's axitinib with pembrolizumab. So the only difference here is that as opposed to abelumab, which is a pdl one inhibitor, pembrolizumab is a PD-1 inhibitor. So not pdl one PD-1 combined again with targeted therapy versus targeted therapy. Same premise, right? Um, couple of things to point out with this study. You know, we talked about that difference between PD-1 and pdl one one of the reasons why you might actually see a greater sort of overarching difference in terms of clinical outcome in this study is twofold. One is that this particular study had a fairly large rest of world population. So what do we mean by rest of world? This is really important as we're looking at clinical trials and kidney cancer. The, the world of clinical trials used to principally be North America and Western Europe. These are markets where people have access to second-line therapy, to third-line therapy. In the rest of the world, if you're looking at Eastern Europe, Russia, Asia, et cetera, sometimes patients get the treatments that are rendered on your clinical trial and nothing beyond that. So that could really have a significant influence when it comes to metrics like overall survival, right, where the influence of treatments beyond the course of the study really are important. The study also had a fairly sizable proportion of favorable risk patients. And, you know, just as the name implies, if you have more favorable risk patients in your study, you know, your outcomes are probably going to do uh, be a little bit better. Um, so across most of the studies that I'm talking about today, the distribution is pretty clear cut. It's 20, 60, 20. 20% 20 good risk, 60% intermediate risk, 20% poor risk. Uh, but here you can see that there are fewer patients who have porous disease, more that have favorable risk disease. Okay, so this study, on the other hand, was kind of a clear win. Um, so axitinib and pembrolizumab showed a very significant difference in terms of overall survival. This hazard ratio has unfortunately increased a bit over the course of time, but it's still a strong estimate um, uh, with a hazard ratio of 0 0.53 here, favoring the combination of axitinib with pembrolizumab. What about response rate? Clearly better with the combination of VEGF plus IO versus a VEGF inhibitor by itself, about 60% versus 35%. So, so clearly a better response rate. What sometimes people really draw straws at is whether or not the complete response rate is equivalent to that of Nevo-Ipi, the, the pure immune therapy regimen that I discussed earlier. With Nevo-Ipi, you usually have a complete response rate close to 11%. With axitinib and pembrolizumab, the number is closer to 6%. What about toxicity profile? You know, as I look at this tornado plot, if you, you know, stand a couple of feet back and look at this slide, not a huge difference when you look at the combination of axitinib and pembrolizumab versus sinitinib here. So, you know, not, not too much to really write home about in terms of toxicity differences.
I will say that, you know, again, I have a little bit of skepticism of this data because when you look at the uh, overall survival in key subgroups and focus your attention on the rest of world population, you know, you really see that that population of individuals in the rest of the world fares very, very well, right? I mean, I think that's pretty evident as you go through these, uh, this particular forest plot. On the other hand, if you were just looking at patients in North America, you know, you could actually see this hazard ratio across well over one. So I, I just don't know whether or not the success of this study is driven by the large proportion of rest of world patients. Progression-free survival, it really did favor the combination of drugs. Um, and that leads us to the most recent data set. So ESMO was literally just about two or three weeks ago, and I wanted to incorporate some data that's hot off the press. These are data sets that you're probably gonna see FDA approval rendered on within the next couple of weeks, in fact. So this is the so-called Checkmate 9ER clinical trial. It was presented by Tony Chueri um, at, uh, at the Dana-Farber again, just a couple of weeks ago. And this study was a little different, uh, but you can see that the schema mirrors what we saw for axitinib and pembrolizumab and axitinib and, and uh, avelumab. In this study, we used the tyrosine kinase inhibitor um, cabozantinib. So cabozantinib is different from axitinib. If you, if you think about axitinib and the way it works, it's a pure VEGF inhibitor. It hits VEGF and very, very little else. Cabozantinib, on the other hand, hits VEGF. It also hits MET, which is a potential key bypass mechanism for VEGF signaling. And it also hits another cell surface receptor called Axel. So by hitting this panoply of different receptors, we think that it may actually yield better clinical outcomes, okay? So what did we see in this clinical trial? Clear win, I would say, for the combination of cabozantinib with nivolumab. I would argue that the difference in progression-free survival that we're seeing here, and, and you know, I didn't put these slides side by side because you can't really do these cross-trial comparisons in a fair manner. But I would say that the magnitude of benefit that we're seeing in progression-free survival here really exceeds anything that we've seen in other studies to date, 16.6 months versus 8.3 months. Overall survival here, again, a clear win for cabozantinib and nivolumab with a hazard ratio of 0.6. You can see very clear separation of these curves over the course of time. And when you look at the forest plots over here, you know, again, this particular study had a lesser proportion of patients from the so-called rest of world. Um, and what's really standing out to me here is that it's the patients from uh, the U.S. and Europe that seem to benefit from this particular regimen, interestingly enough, to a greater extent. Um, I didn't really see, notice a lot of differences here as you go down the list of uh, potential subsets. I will point out here that, you know, as we, uh, I think, in both urology and medical oncology acknowledge, this regimen uh, performed quite well in the subset of patients with bony metastatic disease. That traditionally has been a tough cohort of patients to treat. And the, the drug also fared well in those patients that had no prior nephrectomy. That was actually a big chunk of this study. There were almost 200 patients who had no prior nephrectomy. And again, you can see a trend favoring cabozantinib and nivolumab in that cohort. Response rates here, I think somewhere kind of in between what you saw for axitinib and pembrolizumab and nivolumab and ipilimumab, complete response of 8% versus the 5% that you see with axitinib and pembrolizumab. This is really the statistics that we don't often focus on in looking at this data that really impressed me. 
only 5.6% of patients who had progressive disease from the outset. It's a very, very small proportion of individuals who just kind of blow through this regimen and have primary progressive disease, meaning they're not getting a response to this. So you, you think about it in other terms, right? This means that when you face that patient with metastatic kidney cancer in the clinic, it means that there's only a one in 20 chance that they're not gonna have at least some stabilization of their tumor or at least a complete or partial response. So from my standpoint, especially compared to the drugs that I had when I jumped into the field, you know, over a decade ago now, very, very impressive. Progression-free survival by uh, investigator, also impressive here. You can see 19 months based on investigator response as opposed to essential response. What about toxicity? One important note is that this study actually used a lower dose of cabozantinib than we're used to using in the second line setting. It used a 40 milligram dose. And I would say that by and large, toxicity is here pretty balanced. Um, by the way, I can see the uh, attendance list uh, growing here, which is fantastic. And I, I really do hope to make this interactive. I know it's really hard to be sitting in front of your computer at the end of a long day. So if you do have questions, feel free to uh, put them in the chat box, or, or I don't know if uh, there's a way that Christy could let you into the room and ask in person, but, but do feel free to join in. Okay, so how do I treat metastatic kidney cancer given all of these data sets that I've literally just shown you? So, you know, we talked about axitinib and pembrolizumab, we talked about Nevo and Ipi. You know, I would say that these results from two or three weeks ago have really influenced me by and large. I would say that I tend to favor cabozantinib and nivolumab almost across the board for my patients with good risk disease, for my patients with intermediate and porous disease, you can see that I also prefer Cabo and Nevo. The one setting, and this is relevant to the practicing urologist where I might have maybe a different perspective, is for those individuals who you're considering nephrectomy in. So if you see a patient with intermediate and porous disease where the kidney is still intact, and you're thinking about potentially taking them to the operating room, those are scenarios where I might start with Nevo at the upfront. And if they've gotten Nevo at the upfront, I'll consider Cabo second line. If they've gotten Cabo Nevo already, I'll consider Linvatinib Everolimus. I won't spend too much time talking about that regimen, but, but there's a certain art, I think, towards how every oncologist has arranged their own diagram like this. And, and I'm very uh, pleased to share with you a diagram that's evolving very, very rapidly over the course of time. I also wanted to highlight some of the data that you know you may be seeing emerging over the next couple of months in publication form. The Checkmate 9ER study that Tony presented was clearly you know, the, the highlight of ESMO, I would say, and certainly is gonna have a tangible impact on how we treat metastatic kidney cancer. This is the COSMIC-021 study that I was involved in, and this used a combination of cabozantinib and atezolizumab um, in the frontline setting. Um, this, this study involved two cohorts, um, and it looked at 40 milligrams of cabozantinib, just like in the Checkmate 9ER study, and 60 milligrams as well. Um, and I'm just gonna cut right to the chase. Very impressive data. This is a, a waterfall plot. Um, and you know, in the urology community, maybe you're used to seeing this in the context of, of PSA plots and so forth. This is actually radiographic response in our kidney cancer patients. If you're below this line, that implies a decrease in the size of tumors. If you're above the line, that implies an increase. This is just so different from the waterfall plots that I was used to seeing when I joined the field. Um, and you can see that most patients here are actually having some degree of tumor shrinkage with this combination of cabozantinib and atezolizumab. Progression-free survival data here, I thought, 
pretty impressive. 15 months at the 60 milligram dose, 19 months at the 40 milligram dose. This was not meant to be a comparison of 40 milligrams versus 60 milligrams. And I think you'll probably see the 60 milligram data evolve as we have longer follow-up, but you know, it really suggests that both dose levels are quite active. And based on this data, uh, me and Tony are running a study now, which is being done in the second line setting using this regimen of CABO and ATIZO. So this takes patients that have actually progressed on all of those frontline regimens that we discussed, nevo-ipi, axitinib, uh, pembrolizumab, and it randomizes them to receive cabozantinib and atezolizumab or cabozantinib by itself. So this will really test the premise of whether or not we should be continuing immune therapy in the second line setting and beyond. Uh, Christy's telling me too that if you raise your hand or send a chat message, you can uh, ask a question uh, verbally if you'd like, or you know, again, by all means, send stuff through the chat. So that's all that I wanted to say about treating advanced kidney cancer. I actually wanted to use a good chunk of this talk to talk about science. And, um, you know, Dr. Adisho invited me to give the talk today. He and I have collaborated on a number of projects. Many of my interests actually fall within the very first realm over here, looking at the microbiome. But I've listed here kind of the levels of evidence that we have for the microbiome, for mutational burden, for all these phenomena leading up to PDL1. one um, and so I'm going to sort of go through this in reverse order. We'll talk about biomarkers that might help us pick the right treatments for advanced disease. We'll start with PDL1 here. And I'm going to discuss these studies that we may potentially learn from. There's a really deep dive of PDL1 status in the Javelin Renal 101 study. There's an extensive look in Checkmate 214. Again, these are studies that we literally just went over 15 minutes ago. Okay. In the Javelin 101 study, they looked at PDL1 expression. And, and the thought here is that if you have a patient with raging high PDL1 expression, maybe they're going to respond better to immunotherapy. You know, that whole premise really hasn't panned out to a significant extent. If you, you look at the PDL1 positive group, and we did this in one of the earlier slides there, you can see that they tend to fare just as well as the group overall. You don't really see, you know, a lot of really meaningful differences based on whether or not you're PDL1 positive. Now, what about in Checkmate 214? You know, one might make the argument that in a study like Javelin Reno 1, Reno 101, while both arms are getting a VEGF inhibitor, so you're not going to see significant differences based on PDL1. This is a, a pure immunotherapy study, right? So what they looked at here was two different ways of assessing PDL1 expression in tumor cells and outside of tumor cells. And, and what you see here ultimately is that irrespective of whether or not your PDL1 high or PDL1 low. So patients that are PDL1 high by the tumor cell metric are on the bottom here. Patients that are PDL1 low are at the top. You actually still see a benefit with Nevo and Ipi over sinitinib therapy. So it's, it's not really something that I as a medical oncologist can use in the clinic to distinguish therapy. Um, now, what about the combined positive score, which looks both at tumor cells and at the surrounding environment around it? You know, if, if you look at those populations, again, you know, you see here that there is not a meaningful distinction in terms of clinical outcome based on whether one is PDL1 high or low, high at the bottom, low at the top. So what about inflammatory gene signatures? I actually think this is one of the most, you know, really exciting um, biomarkers in the field. This data really lends itself to a study that we participated in a couple of years ago. It's now published in Nature Medicine, but it looked at sunitinib, which is, again, a VEGF inhibitor. It compared that to atezolizumab, which is an immune therapy, 
a PDL1 inhibitor. And it compared this to bevacizumab plus atezolizumab, again, a pure VEGF inhibitor plus immune-based therapy. And what they did in this study, this was a 300-patient trial, big study, is they were able to divide patients into an angiogenic-driven group, um, a myeloid inflammatory group, and an immune antigen presentation group. And this was based on T-cell profiling. Um, and one of the really amazing things that they came up with, and I, I wish I could go through the data in more detail here, but you know we're limited by time, of course, is that it, they had a really clever way of dividing this cohort. So you could pick out those patients with an angiogenic profile that would benefit from sinitinib therapy. And then you could further subdivide based on the T cell profile into groups that actually might just respond to immune therapy by itself. They termed that the T effector high myeloid inflammation low category. And then there was a contingent that really needed both. They needed a myeloid inflamed profile and a T effector high profile. And, and those folks needed the combination of VEGF inhibitor and immunotherapy. So this has actually been prospectively assessed within several of the studies that I highlighted previously. Again, this is the study comparing um, the, uh, I'm just gonna go through this in a more rapid fashion here, the regimen of axitinib, bevelimab versus sinitinib therapy. And you can actually see that in the context of this study, that angiogenic score really was able to tease out a population of patients that benefited from sinitinib therapy. So it really offers some external validation of some of the results from that trial. Now in this study, they also created a signature that I'm sure we're gonna see applied in other settings, uh, looking at exitinib and avelumab that seem to portend benefit too. So you know, I think what we're moving towards in a lot of these studies is ensuring that we get tissue from everyone, doing a really deep dive of that tissue and making sure that we can use it as a potential predictor of, of outcome or, or at least attempt to get to that stage at some point. Um, this again is a Checkmate 214 study, and I wanted to drive home the point that again, in almost every study phase three trial that you're gonna see coming out, there's really rich efforts at looking at biomarkers. So in this study, they also looked at the um, Emotion 150 score, that score that we were focused on. They looked at the score from the Javelin Renal 101 study. I'm just gonna highlight here that if you have a high angiogenic score, you know, you seem to benefit from sedative therapy based on progression-free survival, not overall survival. So I can't use this as a determinant in clinic, but this is nonetheless a compelling rationale for maybe moving forward with this high angiogenic score as a means of distinguishing the population of patients who really needs to get a VEGF inhibitor. I'm gonna spend a, a, maybe a little less time going through PBRM1 and mutational burden here. Uh, there's been a number of pivotal papers, which I, I would you know, think would be really critical for the audience to know um, based around PBRM1, but it's a very controversial literature. Um, I'm gonna highlight this paper that was published in Science a couple of years back. And they attempted to look at a, what I would say is a modestly sized cohort, about 100 patients in total, uh, that had gotten nivolumab therapy in various settings, first line, second line, and so on. They didn't really find a significant difference in terms of outcome based on mutational burden. You can see clusters of varying mutational burden listed here, and, and you don't really see a distinction amongst folks that benefited versus didn't benefit from therapy. But one thing that seemed to stand out in their assessment is that if you had PBRM1 mutations, it seems as though you're sort of enriched to develop a response. So if you look at this box plot down here, patients that responded to immunotherapy are in green, patients that had stable disease are in blue, and patients that didn't respond are in yellow. 
um, you can actually see here more patients who had responded to treatment up top bearing mutations and PBRM1 versus those that um, uh, did not respond to therapy. Uh, and this really fell out of their analysis. PVRM1 was one of those indicators of a potential response to therapy. So uh, I'm sure that you're increasingly, especially at centers like UCSF and others participating in this call, going to run into patients who come to clinic with kidney cancer with this gene profile on hand. Most will assess for PVRM1. This seems to be a favorable prognostic factor and may, I, I use that word very cautiously, it may predict uh, benefit with immunotherapy. Okay. Um, there was also a look at PBRM1 in the context of the exitinib evelumab data set. And one of the things that you see here um, is that it, it did not seem to identify benefit within this cohort. Um, PBRM1 also was not strongly associated with benefit uh, with nevo ipi over sinitinib. So again, as I've mentioned before, you know, a bit of a controversial literature surrounding this right now, but nonetheless, if you do see PBRM1 on um, a mutational profile, you can think of it as a, as a potential determinant of immunotherapy response. Uh, I think every group is trying to sort of do something akin to what uh, those investigators did in the science paper. This was our effort at characterizing our patients. Almost every patient who comes through the door at my institution is going to get whole exome sequencing, RNA-seq performed um, as a means of characterizing their genome. And, and so what, one of the things that we've done is we've really tried towards, um, strive to really characterize how that relates to their response to immunotherapy. So we had a cohort of patients that received either targeted treatment or immune-based treatment. Um, you can see that it's fairly evenly divided, 43 patients in the targeted therapy cohort, 32 in the IO cohort. And ultimately what came out of our analysis was a little bit different. We actually didn't see that PBRM1 was strongly associated with immunotherapy response. It would have had to have fallen above this dotted line over here for us to declare that. But we did see that this particular alteration in TERP promoter uh, which plays a role in, in a number of cellular remodeling processes, uh, did seem to identify a lack of benefit with immunotherapy. So just as Tony's group had suggested that PBRM1 may be potentially associated with immunotherapy response, we identified that TERP promoter may be associated with a lack of benefit. Okay, so two really differing results. We didn't really see any significant predictors of response associated with targeted therapy in our analysis. In the last couple of minutes here, I'll just chat about something that I'm perhaps most passionate about, which is the microbiome. And this is something that I think you're, you're sure to see uh, you know, throughout the urology literature, maybe even through the oncology literature as a whole, um, as we move towards understanding more about what the microbiome does in terms of influencing our response to uh, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, and so on. Um, so, you know, what really spurred all of this, I, I would actually argue that our group was probably one of the first to look at the microbiome in patients with kidney cancer. Um, we did this very small study that was published in clinical cancer research, gosh, I guess about five years ago now. Um, and this study evaluated patients with advanced kidney cancer. Uh, patients uh, in this cohort were getting VEGF TKIs. And one of the things that you can see is that the bacterial profile of these patients, whether you have high bacteroides or low Prevotella, could potentially influence your risk of developing diarrhea. Very common side effect with this regimen. 
So, you know, we published this a couple of years back, but we, we actually have had a number of outstanding colleagues publish you know, uh, more recent data that really, I think, strengthens the link between the microbiome and response to therapy. This is looking at toxicity. Others have really focused on response. This was a very large study published by the Gustave Roussy group in Paris uh, that looked at 121 patients with kidney cancer, 239 patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, and one of the things that you'll see here is that if you got antibiotics, and as we all know, antibiotics are a very potent way at influencing the gut microbiome con uh, constitution, you can see that you have a diminished outcome with, um, uh, with immunotherapy for kidney cancer. Um, this is uh, patients that received antibiotics in blue over here, uh, patients that didn't receive antibiotics in black, and you can see progression-free survival on immunotherapy far worse if you've received antibiotic therapy. That also lends itself to response. As you can see on the, <clears throat> on the right-hand side over here, um, if you received antibiotics, you can see that a much larger proportion, 64% had primary progressive disease. 21% of patients, uh, on the other hand, who received no antibiotics fell into that same category. You can see a tremendously higher response rate here. So this, this isn't definitive data. You know, patients getting antibiotics may have had other confounders. They could have been sicker. You know, what if that patient was uroseptic at the time you try to begin therapy? Obviously, that's going to impact their outcome. But, but I still think this is, you know, something um, useful for us to consider moving forward. And, and maybe, just maybe an argument, for us to be a little bit more conservative in terms of how we administer antibiotics to patients in the clinic with advanced cancer, right? You know, usually when a patient comes in with any hint of having an infection, we'll load them up with double and triple coverage, but maybe that's not the right approach. Uh, this is more data coming out of the French group. This is a smaller cohort. 60 of these patients had lung cancer, 40 had renal cell. We looked at a, a cohort three times that size previously. Um, but what they identified, and this is just so fascinating to me, is that you could really predict which patients were going to respond based on the constitution of their gut. So I know this is probably in really small font on your screens, but if you look to the very top of these plots over here, you can see on the left-hand side, acromancia, and this is going to be a common theme across multiple papers, in fact. The presence of acromancia, this very specific bacterium, seems to be associated with responses to treatment. If you have other bacteroides species, clostridia species, you can see these sort of enriched down in the red below, you may actually have a diminished chance of responding to treatment. Um, we just published this in uh, European Urology last month. This was our own effort. Slightly smaller cohort. We had 31 patients as opposed to the 40 in that science paper. But nonetheless, we came up with some, I, I think, fairly compelling trends that seem to suggest whether or not you might get clinical benefit, Prevotella, Bifidobacterium, these seem to be associated with clinical benefit. Bacteroides, some of the other species that you saw highlighted in the previous report, seem to be associated with a lack of clinical benefit. In addition to this, one of the things that our data pointed to is that if you have increased bacterial diversity, you may have an enhanced chance at response. And, and this lends itself to what we talked about previously, which is that you know, if you treat patients with antibiotics, you're really gonna limit their bacterial diversity in the gut, and you might be mitigating their chance at responding to immune-based therapy. Um, so it's a very complex interplay. I don't even you know, begin to suggest that I know, you know the answer of regarding how to use antibiotics in this setting, how to fortify the gut with bacteria, 
but we're working on it. So this is a study um, that we're just about done accruing to at City of Hope. Um, if you're interested in the details, it is listed on clinicaltrials.gov. But this is a study that actually uh, will hopefully lend some credibility to the idea of the microbiome as an influencer of response to immunotherapy. We're using Clostridium butyricum or CBM588, adding it to Nevo and Ipi. So we're coming full circle here. We talked about Nevo Ipi in the context of the Checkmate 214 study, and we're trying to see whether or not this could potentially enhance the response to immunotherapy. Um, so I've gone over a ton of potential biomarkers. And, you know, if I were to sort of give you a sense of how we can potentially move these forward in the clinic, you know, right now we're maybe at levels of between pre-analytical and analytical validation of the microbiome. We really do need to, I think, strive towards clinical validation of PBRM1 and some of these inflammatory gene signatures that I discussed. But I think we're going to start seeing a whole wave of trials in kidney cancer, at least I hope we will, that really attempt to prospectively validate the role of these biomarkers in the clinic. I'm going to conclude my remarks uh, there. I wanted to make sure we left plenty of time for questions and dialogue. I know that's always more challenging in the Zoom format, um, but I really enjoyed the opportunity to meet you all. And um, I, I think Christy's asked me to put this slide up here so that you may be able to uh, potentially um, rate this lecture amongst others you've received in this COVID series. So thank you so much for your attention and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.